Hey, I'm glad you're shaking hands, saying hi to people. I hope you're doing it this way, you know, because everybody's afraid of getting sick, right? So we don't want to get germs. So I've been fist bumping people, but good morning. Let me try it one more time. Good morning. There we go. That's great. It's good to see you all here this morning. If you're new with us to Impact, let me just tell you what you've walked into. We are a church that loves the Lord. We love to sing the name Jesus, to worship the name of Jesus. We love to stand on God's holy word. We believe it is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path, that it is inspired. It is God-breathed. And so we stand on God's Word, try to preach God's Word. Uh, and we are in the middle of a series called Bible Favorites, where we're looking at, hopefully not just my, but hopefully some of your favorites as well. And I'm talking about whole chapters of God's Word, where we look at the context and the application of what God is saying in a particular part of Scripture but we're also looking sometimes at stories, which we'll do today. So if you have your Bible, which I hope you do, uh, take it out and turn to the first book in the Bible. We'll get to that in just a moment. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can probably find one there in the chair around you. But let me ask you this. How many of you have ever been on a cruise? Anybody been on a cruise? Look at that. Boy, you people all have too much time and money, I guess. I don't know. No, we've been on one, and we enjoyed it. Uh, it was spectacular. It was uh, just really special because it was with a whole bunch of family. It was an Alaskan cruise, so it was amazingly beautiful. But it may be not only our first, it may have also been our last because my wife tends to get carsick and seasick, and so the boat in Alaska was doing this a lot or whatever, this a lot, and she had a hard time with that. So we loved it, kind of. I loved it a lot. She kind of loved it. So I don't know that we'll be back, but um, I want to talk about a cruise today, a story found in Genesis chapter 6 and the following chapters. If you have your Bible, turn to it. But we're not talking about a pleasure cruise. We're not talking about a vacation type of deal. Um, we're talking about something different than that. You probably already know what we're talking about. We'll get to it in a minute. You know, in his book called The Purpose Driven Life, I've talked about this book a couple of times lately, Rick Warren wrote a great chapter about the life of Noah and the cruise, if you will, that Noah was part of. And it is, it is the essence of a lot of what I want to share with you today. Rick just did a great job explaining some application to this story that I'll share with you this morning. But it's a great book, by the way. Let me just endorse it one more time. It's one of the all-time best-selling nonfiction books in the history of our world, um, The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. And if you ever are struggling with, what is my purpose? What should my focus be? Uh, Rick does a great job of using um, all kinds of principles and thoughts and scriptures in God's Word to point you toward what God would want for you in that context. And I highly recommend it. But anyway, Noah, the center of the chapter within that book that I'm talking about, and the center of the story, the biblically favorite story for many of us, or one of the favorites, is an incredible story. And these unprecedented events were nothing like a, a pleasure cruise or vacation, not at all. They were on the extreme edge of adventure and offered no predictability, uh, very little entertainment value, if any. Yet they taught Noah some of the greatest lessons of his life. And my hope this morning is that as we look at God's story or Noah's story in God's Word, that it will be something God speaks to us in a great way as well with and teaches us some great lessons also. 
The story begins in Genesis chapter 6. It's one that children often learn uh, if they grow up in a church setting, vacation Bible schools or Sunday schools or whatever, and children love it, and they take it in and believe it as is, and yet many grown-ups don't do the same. A lot of adults, um, especially in our secular world today, find this story, you know, just not even possible, let alone plausible. They just don't even see it in such a way. It's, it's hard for many to imagine a ship large enough to hold all the animals Noah was commissioned to rescue, let alone Noah building it, you know, with his very limited skills, very limited knowledge, very limited tools, of course. He didn't have Home Depot, you know. And then the notion of a rainstorm so great that it could cover the entire world is just, you know, beyond imagination for many. And so a lot of grown-ups, if you will, today are like, yeah, it's a nice fairy tale, but that's all it is. But can I remind you all of something? Remind us all of something? And that is this. In no way is God limited what I, by what I believe is possible. In no way is God limited by what you believe is possible. We serve a God who knows no limits. Amen? And so whether or not it seems plausible or possible does not matter to us because if God says that it happened, which He does clearly in His Word, it's true. And we need to stand on that. Well, the story opens not with the roar of floodwaters or the crash of waves, but with a moan or kind of a sigh. It's only the sixth chapter of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, and yet the earth is already overcrowded and, or, or at least overgrown with evil. God was so disgusted with the human race that he considered wiping it out. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. The Bible says, the Lord was grieved, or your translation might say regretted, but he was grieved or regretted that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. The original Hebrew word for grieved or regretted is the Hebrew word meaning to sigh or to moan. I think we can all identify with God in that moment. I mean, we've all been there regretted or sighed about something that we've done. Or maybe you can even remember a time when you sighed because you were with a friend or, or you know of a friend who, who failed to recognize the consequences of a decision that they had made, and you saw it more than they did. And you're like, oh, you know, and, and it, it took the wind out of your sails on their behalf. Well, in his grief, God noticed a man named Noah. Noah was different. I mean, totally different than anyone else. While the rest of the world was sinking in more ways than one, Noah was on the rise. While society was going down the drain, Noah's focus and faith and integrity were gaining strength. Look again in chapter 6, verse 9 says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. What a cool sentence. I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought about what you're going to put on your gravestone or maybe what you put it on, put on the gravestone for your loved one, but that'd be a cool sentence to have, you know. Blank was a righteous man or woman, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. See, Noah's relationship with God basically was summed up with that word italicized there, righteous. 
I, I did the italicizing, but the, the word sounds super spiritual, but it's actually a very simple term. If you remove the suffix on the end of it, the E-O-U-S, then you're just left with the simple word, right. And the point is that Noah lived a right relationship, or lived in right relationship with God. And then the word blameless up there as well uh, sums up Noah's relationship with others. As wicked as the culture around Noah was, people could not help but acknowledge his good reputation and his solid character. They didn't like it or want to admit that or acknowledge it, but they couldn't help it because he was blameless. Jesus talked about this concept in Matthew 5 and 6. Look at this. He said, verse 16 of Matthew 5, he said, said, in the same way, let your light shine before men, that you may see, they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And then just a short time later, chapter 6, verse 1, he says, and some people say, see, contradiction in Scripture. Look at this. Because then Jesus said, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. But that's the key, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So in other words, Jesus is saying, don't be blameless like Noah arrogantly or so as to get noticed or honored or patted on the back or something like that, but seek to live a God-honoring life truly for the sake of honoring God. It's not about you. Honor God for His sake, not so that others acknowledge you. And when you do that, when God is honored by your God-honoring life, then people can't help but see and just go, wow, that's really cool. Um, you know, and, and you are pointing them to Jesus. Now, whether they acknowledge him or honor him themselves is up to them, but our point, our, our um, directive from God through the life of Noah and through what Jesus said in Matthew is to point people toward the Lord by living a life that honors him. And we need to all do that. Now, unfortunately, back to our story of Noah, other than his immediate family, no one followed his good example um, other than his family. They all ultimately, of course, paid the ultimate price for their stubbornness and arrogance and sin. But before the flood wiped them all out, as instructed by God, Noah took somewhere between 50 and maybe even 120 years, there are different thoughts about that when you read different scholars or commentators about that, but somewhere between five decades and maybe even 12 to build this ark. And along the way, I think he had a lot of time, of course, and he learned some incredible lessons that I think we can learn from today as well. We need to take notice of them. We need to learn from them, and we need to not just go, oh, that's cool, but we need to live these out. You ready? Here they are. Uh, three things you can fill in the blanks with. First of all, number one is that Noah trusted God completely. Completely. There are various forms of trust. He trusted God completely. Even when it didn't make sense to Noah, God, or, uh, Noah still trusted God. In Hebrews chapter 11, which we looked at two weeks ago, what an awesome chapter. In that chapter, the Bible says, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. You know, as we talked quite a bit last week when we looked at Isaiah 40, another awesome chapter, the Lord wants us to have an intimate friendship-type relationship with him. You know, he, he wants to have that with us. He adopts us as his children because he is a good, good father, as we sing. 
He loves us so much that He died for us on a cruel and ugly Roman cross. But we need to never forget that while God is gentle and loving and kind and all those things, He is still God. Almighty God, the creator of the cosmos, of the entire everything you know to exist, and then some. Way more than that. He created it all. He is almighty God. You never have and never will be in the presence of anything or anyone you should respect more, honor more, be in more awe of, or in an appropriate way, fear more. The Bible talks a lot about fearing the Lord. It's not that God means you any harm. You don't need to fear Him in that sense. He indeed loves you more than you can imagine, but He is bigger and more powerful than you can possibly imagine. And therefore, we need to have a healthy understanding of that concept that He is beyond what we can conceptualize and therefore have a a holy respect or even fear of Him. And Noah, according to Hebrews 11, with that kind of appropriate fear in place, trusted God completely. Completely. That is such a key word when it comes to trust. Even though what God had asked him to do surely sounded like, you know, probably the craziest instruction he'd ever imagined, probably crazier instructions than anybody else on earth had ever been given. I mean, think about it. There were at least three huge hurdles that Noah had to intellectually get over to be able to completely trust God. The things that I, he had to have wrestled with this at least for a moment. And that is, first of all, Noah had never seen rain Never in his life had he seen rain. Prior to the flood, God irrigated the earth from the ground up, according to Genesis chapter 2. So Noah had never seen rain, and yet he's to trust God and build this because God's going to send this thing called rain, and it's going to cover the entire world. That had to be something he go, wait a minute, okay, okay. But what, what about this, another hurdle? Noah lived hundreds of miles from the nearest ocean. Even if he could eventually build this ship that was to be bigger than a football field, how would he ever get it to water? It had to be something that crossed his mind. Or then the problem of rounding up all the animals. Two of everything on the planet? Are you kidding? And then on top of corralling them, he had to figure out how to care for them and take care, you know, feed them and all of that. These are big things that probably, I would guess, crossed Noah's mind. And yet Noah trusted God completely. Did not in any way that we can see hesitate even. Noah didn't complain or hesitate or make excuses. He just trusted God completely and said, yes, sir, and did what God asked him to do. Now, again, it took Noah at least five decades, maybe more, maybe 12 decades to build this ark. And I'm sure he had to face a lot of discouraging days. I mean, with no sign of rain in the forecast year after, actually, you could say decade after decade. That's a long time to wait. You can bet he was ruthlessly criticized and ridiculed for being a man who thought God spoke to him. He hears, supposedly God told him to do this thing that he's built. I mean, you can just hear the voices and the cynicism and the skepticism and the ridicule and all that that he had to have faced for decades from people. I'm guessing Noah's children were often harassed and embarrassed as well because of the giant ship slowly being built in their front yard. Can you imagine, you know? But Noah and his family kept trusting God, kept honoring God. You know, when you and I choose to trust God in our lives, it means going with whatever he says, however he says it, whenever he says it, whether or not it makes sense to us. 
Think about this. Think about it this way. If God, if you come to a crossroad in life and, and you know clear as day that God is telling you to go left, he says it clearly in his word or you hear him in some other way. He tells you clearly, I want you to go left. And in that moment, you go, okay, uh, well, Lord, okay, I will go where you said. I actually was kind of leaning that direction anyway. I was probably going to go that direction anyway. But, but yes, because you said it, Lord, I will go that way. So I trust you. I would tell you that's not really trust. That's coincidentally going in the direction you are probably going to go anyway. That's not really trust. Trust is when you come to that crossroad and God says, I want you to go left, and your eyes pop out because everything in you says, go right. No, this is the right direction. This is where I should go. Everything is drawing you that way, but you say to yourself, okay, but God is God. I am not, and he says go left, and I don't care if everything in me is leading me that way. I'm going to trust God and go this way even though it doesn't feel right, doesn't sound right, doesn't, doesn't mesh with what I think or feel on the inside. I'm going to do it anyway. That, friends, is trust. We've probably all been in these kinds of moments. And whether or not we went left or right in that moment is what determines whether we really trust God. You know, in the details of, of uh, constructing that ark, notice that there's one part of the ship left out. Uh, we're not reading all the details in it. There's so much more than just one chapter here. But um, if you read through the story, you see that God was very meticulous and detailed about all the sizes and shapes and materials and and all these kinds of things. But there's one piece of that ship, if you know anything about ships, that is essential for every ship that is part of every ship that is never mentioned. You know what it is? The, the rudder. Yeah, connected to a steering wheel or whatever. But there's nothing about that ever named. The ark, you see, was designed to drift, not for Noah to steer. Noah and his family put themselves fully in God's hands, fully trusting Him with the helm as the navigator and the captain because they fully trusted Him. They didn't trust Him kind of or trust Him mostly. They trusted Him completely. There was nothing to hold on to other than God alone, and that is who they held on to. Let me ask you, in what areas of your life do you need to trust God more? where do you need to trust God completely, but maybe you're at the moment vacillating or waffling or hesitating, maybe holding on to a steering wheel and turning it your direction, thinking about, considering God's way, but struggling to really trust Him completely. You know, just as parents are pleased when their children trust their love and their wisdom, I want to tell you, your faith and your trust makes God smile. You ever thought of that? When you trust God, when you honor Him, it makes Him smile. And as we talked two weeks ago, as we studied Hebrews 11, the Bible tells us that without faith, which you could say trust, similar, without faith it is impossible to please God or make Him smile. You cannot please Him or make Him smile without trusting Him, without putting your faith in Him. Noah did that completely, and so should we. Secondly, if you're filling in the blanks, here's the second one. Noah obeyed God. He obeyed God wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. 
You know, saving the animal population from a worldwide flood required great attention to logistics and details. I mean, everything had to be done just as God prescribed it. I mean, every T crossed, every I dotted. God didn't say, hey, Noah, I want you to build a big boat. Okay, God, what's that? What's this, this huge thing made out of wood? I mean, I don't know, roughly the size of a football field. What's a football field? Just really big. You just make a big, the biggest thing you can imagine. Just make it however you want. You know, trust me, I'll fill in the details or gaps, whatever, and help you work through that. No, God gave him very meticulous, detailed instructions, exactly what he wanted him to do as to size and shape and materials and all that, the number of animals to bring on board. And look at Noah's response. Again, Genesis chapter 6. Look at verse 22. Noah did everything. Say it with me. What? Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Not mostly as in, or, but, or anything like that, but just as God commanded him. Wholehearted obedience. Noah obeyed exactly the way God wanted it done, did it the way God wanted it done. It's no wonder Noah pleased God and ended up in the hall of fame, if you will, about those who lived their life in faith in Hebrews 11 that we looked at two weeks ago. You know, if God asked you to build a big boat, a giant boat, I don't know about you, but I think a lot of us would have some questions and maybe even objections and hesitations and reservations. But as far as we read in Scripture, Noah did not. He obeyed God wholeheartedly and without hesitation. It's amazing. I mean, in that scenario where God calls you to go left and everything in you says go right, let me tell you this. Here's what I see some people do today. I've heard people say this. They come to a place where God is clearly saying, I want you to go left. It says so right here in his holy word. I see it. I read it. I know it. But then they say, but but everything in me says go right. So I guess I just need to spend some more time praying about it. Like, no, you don't. You don't need to pray about it. If God says go left, you just do it. You can pray, God, give me strength and courage to trust you, but you don't need to say, God, are you sure? God, am am I really hearing you right? Maybe you said that in your word, but you don't really mean it. None of that. No, if God says go left, you don't need to ask him a second or third time or hesitate praying about it. Just do it. If he says this, then you say, okay. And you go with what he says. Every parent. Let me ask, how many parents do we have in the room again? Asked this last week. All right, most. A large number anyway. Every parent in here knows that delayed obedience is really what? Disobedience. Delayed obedience is really disobedience. Think about it. God does not owe you an explanation or a reason for everything he asks you to do. As Rick Warren stated in his book, your understanding can wait but your obedience cannot. Instant obedience will teach you more about God than a million Bible discussions. Obedience often unlocks understanding. God wants us to obey Him whether we understand Him every time or not. You know, we often try to offer God partial obedience, thinking that that's good enough, kind of like children do to mom and dad. I kind of obeyed. Or I did that part, at least, as if that makes it okay. We like to pick and choose the commands we want to obey. We list, you know, we make a list of the commands that we're okay with, the ones we like, and then we obey them. But we like to ignore the ones that we think are unrealistic or unfair or too expensive or too difficult or anything like that. So we say things like, Lord, okay, okay, Lord, I'll attend church, but I'm not going to tithe. 
Or, okay, Lord, I'll read my Bible, but no, I am not going to forgive that person who wronged me. Or, okay, Lord, I'll go where you want me to go, but as long as you first give me a good, clear reason why. But Noah didn't do stuff like that. He obeyed, not partially, not even hesitantly. He obeyed immediately, wholeheartedly. And he's not alone. We see this in Scripture a number of times. Some of you know, some of you don't know the story of Joshua, but if you remember, he faced an impossible barrier, the floodwaters of the Jordan River. And if you remember that story, they receded only when the leaders stepped foot into the water. When they started obeying and walking into the rushing water, that's when, they, when the headwaters were stopped and they were allowed to cross. It was only after they obeyed. By God's design, our obedience often unlocks His power. And just as partial obedience is disobedience, I would tell you that hesitation is also a form of disobedience. Wholehearted obedience is done promptly when we just, again, say, Yes, sir, Father, whatever you say, I'm all there. You're God, I'm not. Why would I hesitate? It is also something that we do joyfully and with enthusiasm. Let me show you a couple things from the book of Psalms. Psalms 100 verse 2 says, serve the Lord with, what? What's the word? With gladness. We all need to have the attitude that David had when he said this in Psalms 119. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees that I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding and I will keep your law and obey it with what? All my heart. Not with you know, a begrudging, hesitating attitude, but with all my heart. If we truly trust Him with all our heart, trust that He knows best in every situation, why would we not obey? Why would we ever hesitate? As if we, the creation, might know more than the Creator about whether left or right is correct? Of course He knows what's best. Whether it makes sense to us or not, we need to obey Him wholeheartedly. And thirdly, Noah... That's something we can learn a lot from. Noah thanked God continually, not just a one-and-done thing. I, I, I remember talking to a couple that was struggling in their marriage. This was years ago, and really struggling and needing help and felt like they were on the verge of divorce. And, and as I sat and talked to just the husband at one point, I said, well, for starters, how often do you tell her that you love her? Because there was like no more love. They talked about that. They just felt like they weren't really connecting and that kind of thing. I said, well, how often do you tell her I loved her? And he said, well, you'll probably give me grief about this, but the truth is I've told her this. I told you I loved you when we got married, and if it ever changed, I would let you know. And, and he goes, I know people laugh at that and tell me I'm stupid, but I mean that. And I think that's, that, that's, that's logical. That makes sense. And I go, okay, I can understand why you would call it logical, but that is horrible. If you told her you loved her, then, and you still love her today, why not tell her? Does it hurt? Does it cost you money? Is it difficult? Does it mean a lot to her? The answer is yes to that one. Why not? We need to thank God continually. Few things feel better than receiving heartfelt gratitude and appreciation from someone else, right? We've all been there when, when we've done something nice for somebody and they gushed with appreciation and told you how much they loved that and were gracious, you know, in their response. In that way, God is just like you and me. He is just the same. He smiles when we express our adoration, our gratitude to Him. Noah's life brought 
brought pleasure to God because he lived with a heart of praise and thanksgiving. The very first thing Noah did after surviving that incredible flood was to express his thanks to God by offering a sacrifice. Look at this. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 8, so we've skipped toward the end of the story here, verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The very first things he did when he got off the boat was tell God thank you. Now, because of Jesus' sacrifice, we don't offer animal sacrifices as Noah did. We don't do that anymore today, but we definitely need to be grateful as Noah was grateful, thanking God continually for the blessings in our lives. James chapter 1 says, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to raise your hand, but think about this. Does your life have sorrow in it? Have pain? Some form of difficulty? Some type of hardship? I would guess most of us would raise our hand if I asked you to. That's probably true. Frustration. But let me ask you this. Are there not also a lot of things in your life that make you smile, even in the midst of the difficulty? Are there not things, and more importantly, people that you are grateful for? Even in the darkest moments, we can, if we choose to, see light. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from God. I mean, we're talking about the joy you get from watching the sun come up or go down, to the joy you see in a newborn baby's face, to the joy you experience during intimacy with your spouse if you're married, to the joy you get eating ice cream. Every good and perfect gift comes from your heavenly Father, and we, just like Noah, need to be grateful, continually grateful, and tell Him thank you regularly. And then, on top of all of these earthly things, which are legit, we need to say thank you for all of these, then there's the, thing, the things that go way beyond anything this earth has to offer. Paul said this in Ephesians 3. This is a great prayer, if you will, or, or, or focus for him. He said, and may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide how long, how high, and how deep His love really is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. In other words, you can't really grasp it, but try. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Paul went on to say in 2 Corinthians 9, Thank you, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. It is higher and deeper and wider and longer than we can possibly really grasp. It's beyond us. It's indescribable. But as best we can, we want to try to describe it. And mostly we just want to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Last week I told you that I think we each need to stop every day and consider the size of our God. And today I want to tell you I think we each need to stop every day and just say thank you. Thank you for the things we can describe. If you can describe it, do it. Describe it. Don't just say, yeah, Lord, I'm thankful for. I mean, we, we've taught our kids that. I've taught my boys that many, many times. Don't just say, thanks for everything. Be specific. Thank you for this and this and this, and this is what matters to you. One of my sons has a new girlfriend, and he goes, well, how do you explain how much you like her? What do you, what do you say? I don't have a lot of experience in this way. And I just said, well, what do you like about her? Well, 
And he started naming some things. I go, well, tell her the things you like about her. Tell her that you love how she's optimistic and how she loves the Lord and how she's kind to others. And tell her those things. And in the same way, God wants us to tell him specifically why we appreciate him, why we love him, why we surrender our lives to him. What it is. It may be indescribable, but as much as you can describe it, do your best to do so. And I tell you this, an amazing thing happens when we live life with a grateful heart. Not only do we make God smile, but we end up smiling as well. It not only fills his heart, but it fills ours as well. Even in the middle of frustration or pain or heartbreak, which many of you are right in the middle of one or more of those things happening in your life, if you will pause and look for the things or people that you do have to be thankful for and say to the Lord, thank you, Lord all of these, and then you enumerate them and list them, great things begin to happen. He changes your hearts. It is more blessed to give than to receive. When we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in His wonderful face, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Do you know that old song? If you do, some of you don't, but if you do, will you sing it with me? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You know, we were created to worship. And when we worship, I don't know about you, but it brings a smile to my face. But more importantly, the focus is that it brings a smile to His face. That should be our goal. I think pleasing God or making Him smile was something Noah sought to do on a very regular basis which is a huge part of why his name comes up in the very next verse in Hebrews 11. Hebrews eleven six says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, to please God, to make God smile. And then in the very next verse, Noah comes up. In Ephesians 5 we read, Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. I love that thought. I saw that this week and I thought about it for a while. But Paul the apostle, or, or God through Paul, said, Carefully determine or discern what pleases the Lord. Think about what does, what does it take to please the Lord? How do I make God smile? Let that be at the top of your thought process. And in pleasing God, great things happen. And I'll tell you this, if pleasing God is the desire of your heart, great things flow downstream from that. So I just want to ask you that question. Is that a focus for you? Is pleasing God or making God smile what you live for? Do you dwell on that? Do you think about that often? I think it was for Noah. I think it was for Paul who said that. Paul also said this in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, so whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. You know, when you live with the right focus in life, trusting God completely, Obeying God wholeheartedly and thanking Him continually, your priorities and goals change. The things of this earth do grow strangely dim. And the question shifts from, how much pleasure am I getting out of life? To, 
How much pleasure is God getting out of my life? That should be the main question we are concerned about. After all, he loves us more than we can even imagine. He loves us more than we can love him back, more than we deserve, more than we can ever understand. And as we sang just last week, one of my all-time favorite songs is that God is our good, good father. I love that song. And he is, as a good, good father, someone who loves us and enjoys us. You know, my children, my boys, Ethan and Garrett, didn't really have to do a whole lot for me to enjoy them as they've, you know, been growing up. In fact, when they were little and they were still sleeping in the crib, I used to go back into their room and sometimes just watch them breathe because I loved them so much. Rick Warren talked about this in his book, and as I was reading about him saying some of these things, I'm like, oh yeah, I had a flashback. That's exactly where I was at. When I was, when I was a young father, I would go into the crib room, or the room with the crib, and I would just get down, and I would just watch through the bars and see my son there, just, you know, a little tiny guy breathing, and I would, for one, make sure he's breathing, because I was paranoid about that, making sure. And then I would just watch that chest go up and down. And, 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 and sometimes my eyes would just fill with tears because I loved him so much, not because he was doing anything for me, but just because I loved him so much. Can I tell you, friends, God loves you that much and more. He loves you as if you're the only other thing on this earth. And just as a parent does not require their children to be perfect or even mature in order to be loved and enjoyed, God is the same way with you. Listen, He doesn't wait for you to reach maturity or perfection before He starts liking you. Some people think that. He loves and enjoys you at every stage of development as you go through this world. Now, of course, He wants you to grow in your walk with Him and become more and more mature in Him, honor Him more and more in all these ways, but He loves you right now, regardless of what your right now looks like. Some people do not believe that. Think, well, he loves good people, but not, no, not me. Maybe if I get my act together, then maybe he would tolerate me, love me, maybe. I'm telling you, God loves you right now, no matter what your right now looks like. And the question I want to close with is this. As we have thought about the life and example of Noah, the question is this. Will you make pleasing God the goal of your life? thinking of all that you have to continually thank Him for and all the reasons you have to obey Him wholeheartedly, it starts, if you go in reverse order, it starts with trusting Him completely. Not kind of, not mostly, but completely. I want to ask you, if you will, right now to stand with me. The band's going to lead us in an incredible song about singing the name of Jesus and surrendering to Him and worshiping Him. As they lead us and as we sing and worship, maybe you put your hands in the air, maybe you don't, but would you worship His name? Sing the name Jesus with all you've got. And if you need to surrender to Him or trust Him completely, maybe in a new way, maybe for the first time, there will be others up here with me that would love to talk with you and pray with you about what that next step can look like. But let's worship Him with all we've got right now because He is worthy. Let's sing it together.